0: Welcome to Growth Mindset On! I'm Kristina Kruchanu, your host, and the objective of this podcast is bringing you conversation with changemakers. I will be interviewing inspiring people in order to keep you with the mindset needed to achieve success. On today's episode, we have the guest Rob Fitzpatrick, the author of The Mom Test, a book about how to talk to customers and learn what they want. His book is currently taught at top universities like UCL and Harvard. He's exited several startups, is a Y Combinator alum, and on today's podcast, he will share insights from the book, but also his personal experience as a VC-backed founder. If this podcast is useful, contribute to our growth by sharing it. What's more, if you have a project and would like to share your, your story and have it featured, feel free to send it over at growthmindseton at gmail.com. We just love to get inspired. Let's get started. Uh, Good morning, uh, Rob. It's such a nice pleasure to have you on Growth Mindset On. And as I normally do, I ask uh, my guests to introduce themselves.
1: Well, I'm, uh, I'm Rob Fitzpatrick. I fell into startups largely accidentally. I wanted to be an academic and along the way, I realized that startups were a thing and that seemed like a lot more fun. So I took my academic research, this was back in about 2006, and kind of tried to pretend it was an idea for a company and we applied for funding. Uh, We ended up getting accepted by Y Combinator, which is great. They gave us a lot of encouragement and excitement and obviously opened the door to more investors and whatnot. And we ended up raising a follow on round, running that business for about four years. And we were basically trying to figure out social advertising before Facebook did. And obviously we failed at that. And it was kind of a a bit of a tough experience for me because I thought we were so successful. We had these world-class investors and we had some great customers like Sony and MTV and the BBC. And we were on on TV, we were on newspapers, and then we failed. I was like, oh, man, that's tough. And so after that, I wanted to recover. I was pretty burned out. Um, And so I swung to different types of businesses. I did a pure lifestyle business. Then I was like, okay, that was fun. That was relaxing. But I would also like to have some income, you know, more than just paying my bills. So I set up kind of a more reliable bootstrap business with a focus on early revenue and being able to grow and scale a little bit, you know, not as much as a hyper growth startup, but a little bit. And I've kind of swung around over the last 12 years. I've done a bunch of different types of businesses. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, I hugely love the, the, the startup world. And yeah, at the moment, mainly what I most enjoy, my last business did okay. And so I'm kind of taking a couple years off. I've been writing books. I learned how to sail. I've been relaxing, traveling around. I'm based in Barcelona now, uh, as are you, which is uh, you know how we met. And yeah, I don't know, just enjoying life and, and kind of figuring out what the, uh, the next big project I'll jump back into is.
0: But anyways, uh, what uh, you forgot to mention, and it's one of the things I was so amazed. In fact, I was speechless when you told me you are the, the person who wrote the mom test. And it was surprising because I, I was recommending that book sometime when I was starting my own business. And uh, I never had the pleasure until I met you and I, I, I need to, to, to read the book. And uh, I've done it. I've done my, my homework. And... Uh, it, uh, definitely it's definitely a, it's a fantastic book and we will get we'll dig into that later on so going back to 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 your story so you started a business so I suppose that's kind of the, that failure or seeing that uh, when you think everything is going in the right direction you have funding and uh, there are many startups there who don't even have funding you know like you were kind of backed by investors like give you a lot of um Uh, security you know that you are going in the right direction i suppose that's what kind of took you after to to kind of write the book and and dig more into what it really takes to be a a successful startup
1: it's hard like you're always in two minds as an entrepreneur because on the one hand you believe completely that what you're going to do is worth doing and will be successful and that it's worth sinking five or ten years of your life into and you're no matter what goes wrong you'll figure out a solution so that's kind of the, the public face, and that's the way you present yourself to your team. It's always secure, and there's always a plan, and it's what you present to your customers. But then internally, when you're looking at your strategy, it's the exact opposite, because you're thinking about what are all the things that could go wrong? like What are all the things that could kill us? What do I need to be paranoid about? What are, what are the risks I need to identify? What are the problems I need to solve? And it's a bit it's a bit difficult in your brain cause you're feeling both like I need to present myself as this hyper-confident, hyper-devoted, but then also it's like internally I'm so skeptical and I'm looking at all the things that can go wrong. It's difficult to resolve. And these external validators like funding, press coverage, big customers, your soul so desperately wants to take those signals as proof that what you're doing is correct and that you're succeeding. Uh, but actually, it's like, yeah, there's they're steps in the right direction, but you can still get a lot of those validators while running down a dead end. And, and that's a tough thing to reconcile emotionally and and mentally and in every conceivable way.
0: Yeah, I mean, Ed, I think it's very humble on your side, you know, because uh, myself and the startups I work for uh, were very tiny we never got at that, that stage, you know, we never got to the press coverage uh, funding. And it's, It's. I think it's very humbling on your side to say, you know, you want to kind of listen to it, but you know, you have to think about the the thing that could go wrong. And I think that's definitely one of the point of views that many founders don't have. And I think it's something that it needs to be trained because we start so, some people you know that start a business start you start with an emotion no it's based on an emotion one do it and you are super excited and um and uh, you know you don't it's kind of it's just emotional 100% emotional and you kind of it's like when you're falling in love no when you're falling in love <laughs> it's like you don't see the bad stuff you know you just think <laughs> that oh this person I love this person because it's this it's that but you don't you don't want to see or you're blind to the best stuff. So I, I think your point of view is very trained in terms of uh, of startups. Uh, I don't know so much about love, but in terms of startups, I think it's very trained. You know, people, uh, at least myself, the experience I have, and it's uh, definitely way less than yours. I think people need training on that, like being able to do a pre-mortem. I think there are some um, some many accelerators or incubators are um discussing or are doing that in their lessons pre-mortem but i think not everyone is ready to see the bad things you know like you don't sign the uh um i don't know you say uh prenup uh contract when you get when you marry someone no <laughs>
1: yeah, you exactly. don't want to hear
0: about the bad things you don't want to hear about the divorce because like come on i i you know this is in the right direction so i don't want to hear about the bad thing so <laughs>
1: The, the way I think about it now is there's this great quote, um, that it's about writing a book, but it applies to startups as well. It's by, uh, Dr. O. he says that writing a book or starting a startup, it's like driving at night in the fog. You can only see as far as your headlights, but you can do the whole journey like that. You know, you, you don't have a complete vision of the whole path ahead of you. You know, you can only see a few meters, but like, if you pay attention to those few meters, you can see the obstacles coming and you can, you can find a way around. And I really liked that because it made me more comfortable with charging ahead even though I, I still hold a lot of uncertainty. It's like, yeah, but how are we gonna like expand to China? Well, like who cares? That's a problem that's miles and miles from now. You know, can, can we get as far as our headlights? Can we solve that set of problems? And, and of course this is anchored in the idea that you also need to know where you're going. You can't just drive around with no destination at night. That's not gonna lead to a good outcome. And so I'd like to extend this metaphor, and this is my attitude toward, toward failure now, is that some people are like, yeah, I don't want to think of the things that could go wrong. That's discouraging. It worries me. It stresses me out. <laughs> and my response is like, well, if you were driving at night, would you turn off the headlights? Would you be like, yeah, there might be something in the road. I don't want to know about that. I'm going to turn off my headlights so I can't see it. You know, and I'm going to drive really fast and really confidently in one direction because that's the fastest way to get where I'm going well, that's, that's obviously stupid. You know, that's going to end really badly for you. So we turn on our headlights and it's sometimes we drive slowly if we need to. And it's not so that we can give up. You don't see an obstacle in the road and go, Oh darn, I better go home now. You see an obstacle in the road and you go, Oh, thank goodness. I saw that like ahead of time. Let me now find a way around it so that I can still successfully get to my destination. Even if that means going down a path or even backtracking for a while, in a direction which is like frustrating, right? Cause you're like, dang, I thought it would be faster than this. I didn't think I'd have to do this extra, you know, leg of the journey, but, but you do. And like the alternative is to blindly run into a log that's fallen across the road. So that, that's the way I see it. It's like, you know,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you're, you're exploring. It's not a, it's not a failure. It's just like uh, an unexpected detour, but thank goodness you saw it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, and I think that that's what it helps, you know, um, uh, founders out there who kind of probably do this, um, Pre-mortem meetings, in terms of the strategy, or at least foreseeing or knowing that something may, may may come along the 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 way, it prepares you at least psychologically, you know, to be ready if something comes and uh, be ready to face it. But also, I think in terms of strategy or uh, you know, Plan B, if that uh, if the plan you have or the strategy you have is not uh, the one uh, working out, so so yeah. I, I, Yeah, go
1: ahead. Let me just clarify that although it's easy for me to talk about after the fact, like at the time, it's still incredibly difficult. Like it's so emotional. It's so painful. I'm like a huge mess when this stuff is going on. And even when it's happened more recently, after I thought I'd learned the lesson, it was still a mess and it was still impossibly hard to deal with. So it's like easy to reflect backwards on stuff and be like, yeah, this is the correct mindset. But like at the time, it still hits you hard. So I would just say, like, don't beat yourself up too bad if you feel like you're in the emotional trenches. Um, and, and at a certain point, it's like, I know I feel bad, but, like, whatever, I'll deal with that. But, like, there's also got to be a path forward, which I'm going to gonna take when I get over the, the emotional pain.
0: Yeah, I think because I think people, to be honest, people who get and constantly, you know, striving um, to improve their startup or come up with ideas in um, uh, chase them and try to make it a reality I think we are some kind of uh, I don't know if that's the term in English but uh, uh, masochist no because mm-hmm. you know as you're saying you're just going okay you just see where you uh, your until your headlines uh, can see but what's after that and we like that you know like we like the darkness uh, surrounding us because it can uncover uh, also interesting stuff you know and uh, I think, I don't know if you agree with that, but people constantly taking challenges who do not probably go into the corporate world, the fully elite type of path. Now, you know where you're going, you know where you're heading, you know what comes after uh, if you work hard enough and uh, you know your pay, you know. So uh, what do you think about that? Like, what do you think describes uh, entrepreneurs, even yourself as, as, a, as one
1: I've asked a lot of people this, especially young people, because I'm super curious about the career path of entrepreneurship. Like people know what they're getting into when they decide to become a banker or a lawyer or a musician or any of the other careers. Whereas when people want to be an entrepreneur, they often make that decision and they jump fully into it without understanding what that career path is like. There's just something so primal that pulls them there. And I've asked a lot of people and some of them, are just pissed off at their boss and their work, and they're sick of making other people rich, and they're willing to work hard, but they wanna work hard for themselves. Other people do it because they are frustrated by inefficiencies in the workplace. Like maybe they joined a company that they thought was gonna change the world, and then once they're in it, all they see is bureaucracy and BS, and they want to start their own organization because they see that as the biggest the most direct lever to move the world in the direction they want to move it Um, for others it's about freedom like they want to be a musician or an artist and their traditional structures for doing that are very hit or miss like getting signed by a label or getting a showing in MoMA or whatever as an artist and so they just want to wrap enough of a business around their craft that they're free to continue doing the craft they love and all of those reasons are, are completely legitimate for me it was kind of just a general uh, avoidance of bureaucracy. I wanted to have a direct connection with the people I was serving. And I wanted, if I did a good job, I would be rewarded. And if I did a bad job, I would go hungry. I like that direct feedback. And I didn't want it to be buffered with layers of bureaucracy and indirection. And one of the mistakes I made with my first company is that I set it up in a way where it was meant to be as scalable as possible like we were trying to compete with Facebook, you know on the advertising market That's super ambitious. And at the time I was like, yeah, it's ambitious. That's awesome If it doesn't end with a billion dollars, I don't care about it But like what was I talking about? I was like a 24 year old kid I didn't know I couldn't even pay my rent and here I am being like no, that's not good enough You know millions are never gonna matter. We need billions and it's kind of absurd and It's okay and obviously like some people do really well for that and that's what they want and that's what they're cut out for But what I've realized in the time since is that isn't what I wanted. What I wanted was To be working for myself To have a good quality of life to be working with people I care about to be working for customers whose lives I want to improve So I'm much happier with like small and mid-sized companies where I can kind of control the day-to-day work with a small team all that stuff and for me the 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 first big company it was super fun our investors treated us great the failure was very traumatic for me but I still don't regret any of it but it was just a bad fit it was like a really complicated and difficult way to get to the goals that I wanted for myself so for me like the the smaller mm. companies are better i wish i'd realized that at the, the first it would have saved me a few years and a lot of heartbreak
0: yeah but i think heartbreak is is always good you know it's a good it's a good lesson. As you were talking in, uh, in, the, in your book, in order to kind of avoid mistakes that we, we normally do, and I think many first-time founders go through that, probably you need to go through that heartbreak in order to, to learn it. They say that mistakes are good, are the best way to learn something, rather than somebody telling you, you know, this is not the best way, you should do this. And I think failure it, is definitely, a, it's a heartbreak, but such a huge lesson.
1: Yeah, I mean, success is also a good lesson. I, I would choose success if I could <laughs> over failure as a way to learn. But yeah, there, there's certainly there's value you can extract from failure. Um, and a lot of it is is intangible. Like I think of entrepreneurial resources. So if you think of your career path as an entrepreneur, there's certain unfair advantages that you can bring into the creation of every new company. So for example, if you run a popular blog or podcast or meetup group or anything like that, then you've got this audience of people who you have access to and who trust you and who are easy for you to understand because you can reach them. And then when you want to test an idea or launch a product, you've already got an audience waiting for you. And that's a big unfair advantage. If you've got you know 10,000, 100,000 people on an email list, anything you do will be successful. Uh, and so Often what you get out of a failure, yeah, there's the learnings and that side, but there's also these tangible assets, like maybe alongside building the company, you also built an email list, and that's now a clear, concrete, valuable resource that you can take with you into all of your future projects, you know, so long as that's aligned with what people signed up for and what they expect to hear from you and all of that, but there's ways to handle that. Um, Other ones are access to co-founders like a lot of people with their first businesses. They really struggle because they don't know any good potential co-founders Where do I meet techies? Where do I meet marketing people? This is impossible. How do I find a good collaborator? No one trusts me Well by flailing around in your first business, even if you fail completely uh, You've kind of done this work in public and you've met a lot of other good people who are also having interesting troubles with their businesses And maybe you failed and someone else has failed, but you've seen each other do it And now you trust each other and you can start the next one together So like audience, um, access to co-founders. Another one is uh, industry insight. It's hard. Like that's, uh, these insights are what what companies get built on. Um, Like I met a, a guy who was starting a marketplace for fruit. And I was like, there's, that's a ridiculous idea. That's so stupid. And he went on to tell me he'd been working on the docks for the last 10 years, unloading these big shipping boats that come in just completely full of, you know, tens of thousands of tons of fruit. And what happens is the grocery stores have all set in order, but there's a huge amount because obviously harvests vary. There's a huge amount that no one has bought yet. And so what happens is every morning there's an auction for all the leftover fruit. And it's like cheap and it's very inefficient and it depends who's there and what you've got. It's like, oh, I've got 50 tons of cherries. Who wants them? Uh, and so he was like, I'm just making that efficient. I'm just building the marketplace for all the leftover fruit. And it was such an amazing insight and he went on very easily to build a super successful business because he had the 10 years working on the docs that gave him that insight. Uh, And so those like pieces of career insight or sorry, industry insight is like another big takeaway you can get out of failures. And then another one is your meta skills. So things like knowing how to talk to customers, knowing how to ask for money, (laughs) knowing how to talk about money without being embarrassed, uh, knowing how to handle a team, to hire, to fire, to manage. These are skills that are very hard to learn until you've tried to start a company and once you know how to do them they make all of your future businesses more successful so i think it's like those are much more tangible than just the idea of learning from failure there's like these concrete pieces you can pick up from the wreckage
0: so that's where uh, uh, your book steps in i think i think because that when i was reading in uh, uh, when I was reading it, I realized that many companies, you know, uh, fail so much in talking like getting the right question, zooming in the um, pain points uh, that these uh, users may have. It's it's very complicated and uh, I think you explained that very well I- I in your book. It's, it's you know, because you maybe have an insight and you, ha- you are biased by where you want your, your uh, business idea to be or, or your project to head towards and when you ask when you ask users, um, you want to hear what you 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 thought you know so so I think it's it's sometimes it's complicated that to to kind of see that they are probably leading you in some other direction, but your your ear is not uh, focused on that. it's focusing on the thing that you think will will help you better. I don't know uh, if i if I make myself understood.
1: Yeah, the, the biggest mistake people make when they go out to ask for feedback is they begin the feedback meeting by pitching. Yeah. They go, hey, here's our product, here's our vision, here's all the ways, like all the great things we're doing. And what happens, there's two things that happen when you do that. One is that you, as an entrepreneur, you're exposing your ego. You're saying like, look, this is a thing I really, really care about. I have poured my heart and my soul into it. Tell me what you think. And that makes it really difficult for people to give you crushingly honest feedback like they'll always hedge it because they don't want to see you cry in front of them. And it's like, they want to be kind. They want to be supportive. And they're thinking like, well, maybe I just don't get it. It seems like a smart person. Like maybe they get something I don't. So they just say kind of nice things. And even if they say that they hate it, like, so what? It's just one person's opinion. That doesn't mean you're going to succeed or fail. And, and so that, that kind of, it invites these sort of compliments and opinions that aren't actually meaningful insight. And then on the other hand, when you start by pitching, you also zoom in the type of feedback that you're able to get. So let's say that I'm building an app to help you learn a musical instrument. And I'm like, hey, here's my app, this is how it works, it does all these great things, what do you think? I've now zoomed in the conversation so that you're giving me feedback about my app. But what we haven't figured out is whether you're going to use an app at all to learn a musical instrument, or whether you even want to learn a musical instrument. And if you do, is that something you're willing to pay for? And if you claim you want to, like why haven't you already learned through YouTube? Like have you ever opened a YouTube video and like followed along with the tutorial? And like, if so, that's great. I would love to investigate that behavior. Like why did you stop? Why didn't it work for you? Now we're into a really interesting conversation where I'm learning from your behaviors. But if you go, no, I've never even Googled for it. I've never even looked at a YouTube video. I'm like, oh, you actually don't care about learning a musical instrument, do you? You're like, no, I guess I actually don't care. Okay, you're probably not a customer for my app like when you start by pitching, you can't learn if the problem actually matters. You can't learn about their customer behaviors. All you can learn about is their opinion about the particular features you've chosen. So you need to start much earlier. You need to start at like them, their life, their existing behaviors, what they're already doing and why they're doing it that way. Uh, And then after you've learned that stuff, then you can pitch if you want to. Oh, I think I've got a thing that's perfect for you. It's like, would it be okay if I showed it to you or is that not so relevant for you right now? You can kind of ask for permission to transfer into a pitch mode and then you can go into your normal sales meeting, demo, whatever you want. But you need to get that customer understanding first
0: yeah yeah I really yeah I think this is something also uh, especially when you're uh, when you're talking with with customer, I think this is very very crucial to take into consideration because if you're just focusing on that specific um what you want to hear from them, but you don't go be beyond that it's uh, uh it's very complicated to know which is your type of target user the one you wanna focus on or what's your what's your niche so uh, so that's a very good highlight. And also, I think even myself, uh, and I think, I don't know, you're British, right? Uh, correct me. Yeah, British me.
1: and American. Uh, my parents are British. I grew up in the US.
0: Okay, okay. And I was, I was going to say, like, British are mo- uh, mostly politically correct. And um, and even myself, my education, the, my parents educated me this way. Like, you don't say bad stuff to people. You know, you don't want to hurt them. <laughs> so, So, like, even sometimes when I am, um, I struggle to tell you know uh, even my coworkers or even if something is not working properly or even my boss you know for example in the startup I was working at how do you say things in a way don't hurt people? It's complicated.
1: The way I think about it is so that's like that's moving the burden onto the. Person who's giving the response. So if I go, hey, what do you think of my idea? I've now shifted the burden onto you, and you're trying to figure out a polite way to answer that question while giving me the truth, but also not hurting my feelings. It's better if I ask the question in a way where you don't even have the option of hurting my feelings because my ego just doesn't even enter the equation. So if I go, hey, what do you think about my music learning app? Suddenly the burden's on you to respond in a way that doesn't hurt my feelings. If I go, hey, have you ever, like, are you trying to learn a music instrument? You go, no. I'm like, why not? Uh, I don't know. Well, I tried. Actually, I watched a bunch of YouTube videos about a ukulele, but like this happened and this happened. Oh, interesting. Like by just reframing the question from being not about my idea and instead being about your life, what you've already tried and why you've done it that way, why it did or didn't work. um, It completely removes like you're no longer worried about hurting my feelings because you're just telling me facts about your life. And that's the best and least biased type of customer feedback is when they don't even have the chance to hurt your feelings because you very carefully created the questions in a a smart way, you're asking what they're already doing and why. It's about their life, not about your idea. And this is the crux of what I talk about in the Mom Test book. It's just how to structure the questions in this way and how to design the conversations and approach the conversations so that you're taking full responsibility for getting to the truth instead of expecting other people to tell you the truth.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I completely agree with that. And I think that's... The way how you say things—it's uh, super important. And I think the ego part is also another crucial aspect to consider whenever you're starting a company and you have to hire people and you have to relate to other people or ask other people about your idea or uh, get insights. And um, it's um, ego depletion. It's something that's so complicated. I mean, even I mean we are humans, and ego—it's uh, something that that it kind of defines us or probably because it, we are insecure or probably we think that if we are not the person in charge or we are not, um, you know, where we want to be, uh, it's, it's, it's so complicated. You know, I think I have also seen many founders who kind of, um, are afraid to show vulnerability, which is one of the things I think when you're starting a journey, Uh, being vulnerable in in front of investors, you don't know everything about the investment. So you're going to just put yourself in front of people who know way more in terms of, you know, economics, money, um, you know, uh, strategy, whatever. And, um, you know, I see many, many founders who are out there super young. um, And, you know, I think the best ones are the ones who are... um, who are not afraid of showing who they are or probably they know they don't know everything so that's one of the things that it's it's also very very difficult to to master
1: yeah one of the this is a big problem for me i was super self conscious about everything it's why i first started growing a beard because it made me look older in my sales meetings so i felt a bit more comfortable but it's hard like fundraising, selling, hiring. If you hire someone who's 10 years older than you, 20 years older than you, all this stuff's difficult. Um, and the way I've started to approach it is like I I used to try to always look perfect. Right? So I'd go into a sales meeting and it's like, I've got all the answers go into a fundraising meeting. It's like, I got all the answers. And at a certain point I was like, I got comfortable with the idea that I don't have all the answers. And so, in my earliest fundraising meetings, when I'm first talking to investors, instead of being like, I'm amazing, give me money, when I actually have no idea what I'm talking about, I would be like, hey, listen, thank you for meeting with me. I think we're like exploring something super interesting, but like we're really confused about how to move forward with it. And that totally, in one sentence, you've completely changed the dynamic of the conversation and you've now brought the other person to your side of the table and you can now reveal all the weakness and the questions and the uncertainty and they're willing to help you. And even like if I was going out, I recommend this all the time and no one ever does it. But if you're going out to start fundraising, start by talking to the friendliest investors first, not the best. And instead of treating them as investors, treat them as advisors for the investment process. So sit down with them and be like, Hey, we're trying to raise around for half a million we have no idea what we're doing like we're onto something really interesting but we're like super confused about the fundraising process if you were in my shoes like how would you be structuring the process do you think we're far enough along do we need to make more progress first like what do we need to do who should we talk to first what should we be asking for and basically like treat those early friendlies as someone on your team who knows a lot and who can give you advice and help you structure the plan and Sometimes they'll say, yeah, you guys are honestly miles away. You're nowhere close. You just need to get this number higher before you can credibly raise investment. And then you go, okay, great. You don't need to waste more time. Can I come back to you in three months and we can have this chat again? Yeah, absolutely. People love that. They love it. Like what they don't want is like you then keep pushing anyway. Well, can you introduce me to everyone anyway? No, of course I can't. I just said, you're not ready. But by asking for help at the beginning, you can figure out it's like going from having your headlights turned on on the dark drive to having floodlights. You can suddenly see so much more of the journey ahead of you and you can then make much better decisions. You don't need to drive down dead ends because you can see that they're a dead end from 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 far away. Um, and it, it's useful. It's useful. And often those people that you ask for help, there's an old joke. It's true though. If you want advice, ask for money. And if you want money, ask for advice. Like if you start by asking people to help you, like, They kind of start to like you and it builds this relationship and and when you do actually need something they go you know what i'll actually be you know it's rare that people just throw money at you without you asking but it's like it can develop in that way and i've gotten a lot of my first customers first investors through just asking people for honest help
0: yeah 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 because it's something that you 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 definitely highlighted like um you know just going out there and ask for help you know just just do it because people are willing to help. Nobody, okay, they will say no to money. If you go, you know, I'm trying to raise funds straight away and they will say no because that's definitely something that it, it takes time and it, it it has to, depending on the investment or at the stage of your startup and so on and so forth. But if you approach these people, even if even if they are probably the best, uh, but if you approach them in, in, a, in a, you know, not so... Uh, money related situation like let's have a coffee let's discuss I have this idea and so on and so forth and I think that's something that tips that um, uh, you give and it's, uh, it's fantastic uh, yeah I, you know I started to apply that myself because uh, even when I started this you know I was very afraid like on approaching people you know who's gonna uh, tell uh, you know people will, will not agree to come to the podcast or so uh, I say, you know, I'm just going to do it. I think it's, it's just about sharing. And, uh, and people, you know, it's, it's the same as asking for, for advice or for help. People are, are eager to help.
1: Yeah, so. and you need to be the, – the mistake with asking for advice is to be too vague. So if someone emails me and they say, hey, Rob, can we hop on a call and talk? You could really help me out. I'm going to say no every time because from my perspective, I'm really worried that they're a time waster. And this is true of any busy person who's getting an email. You need to be specific about why they in particular can help you and kind of what you're expecting to happen. So someone emailed me out of the blue the other day and, and he said, you know, hey, I'm in university, I'm starting a company, I have these three questions about how to talk to customers. And I said, You know oh great call me here's my number and he called me we had a 10-minute chat and it was great for me it was really rewarding because I was able to help I knew I would be able to help I knew he had specific questions and didn't just want to like waste my time for an hour having a coffee so yes you can always ask for help but you also need to be specific about why that person is able to help you um, and put that in your original request
0: yeah yeah the, the time uh wasting i think every it, it's a illness now we never have time and specifically because um like being concrete it also says a lot about where that person knows it's like some some uh, ahead or or has thought about specifically of what he or she wants to ask so good that's a good point because i think uh i don't know if it was just me but you know uh some years ago, I wouldn't have dared, you know, to do this or even like just randomly reach someone on LinkedIn, which I've done uh, in the last two years. But uh, I say, like for example, even for the podcast, I approach people who were who are already, you know, uh, podcasters and have a, a very long uh, trajectory, and I've, I've asked them how you do it. What tips do you give me? Like specific a specific questions, which material. And uh, yeah, I got a very good, very good reply. So, so it's, it's a very interesting tip. And something I would also say is like daring, because I think if that student, uh, you know, reach out to you, probably because, you know, he will answer. It's like, be a believer, you know, at least try, because if you say, come on, nobody's going to answer to me, come on, is this guy isn't going to answer to me, no way, it's not happening. But if you don't try, you'll never know so so it's about that leap of faith you need to have with yourself uh, and just um doing it and probably if he answered just a random you uh, ask you just a random question like very vague and you don't answer to him probably also gives him some some insights maybe i need to improve you know my approach to people you know it's it's um, a you know trying and failure type of uh method so uh and uh basically you you're telling me that you are currently uh, based in Barcelona. I mean I, I know because we've met that uh you're you're doing the lean startup uh, uh is that the name uh, lean startup circle no meetup?
1: Yeah exactly. It was uh created by someone else years ago and it's been handed between a, a variety of wonderful organizers but uh, I I'm currently at its head. So yeah, it's just the it's always nice. I I'm a big fan of of local communities. Um I benefited so much when So I started my first company, you know, the normal San Francisco thing in the US, Silicon Valley, that's where we raised our first funding. But we had a really tough time finding the customers we needed in San Francisco. So we made the tough call about a year and a half into our business to pick up our whole team, which wasn't that many people to be fair. It was like five people and relocate to London and difficult, expensive transition, you know, costly in terms of money and time. But it was so important for us because London is one of the cities that all the big advertisers and media companies have a presence in. And when I was based in San Francisco, every time I wanted to have a customer conversation, I needed to get on a plane. In London, I could just, you know, go to the pub or go down the street and everyone had their headquarters there. And in San Francisco, we've been really too focused, I would say, on our product. All we were doing was programming, but we, we weren't balancing it by an understanding of how people wanted to use the stuff we were making. So we measured our whole productivity. We used to use a time tracker and we would kind of compete within the the team about who had spent the most hours per day coding and that creates a really toxic cycle of exhaustion and burnout. And once we got to London, it was a chance to kind of slow down. We were close to our customers. We could talk, uh, the whole tempo slowed down and it was great for us. And we started being a lot less tired and a lot more productive. And we were also making better big picture decisions. Maybe before we were making decisions about which feature, which line of code, whereas now we were making decisions about which strategy, which product, which market, and that was more impactful. And in London, we also took the step of engaging with the community, which we'd been so busy in San Francisco, we'd never really benefited from the knowledge of other founders. And in London, it was still fledgling. like That was 2010, so Lean Startup had just come out as an idea. We started organizing meetups and little events and knowledge sharing. And it was such a pleasure and I learned so much from it and it was emotionally so helpful to have other people to lean on. And also I met a lot of my future co-founders through those events because you don't get a co-founder overnight. You can't just like go to a meetup and find a co-founder. You need to kind of date co-founders in the same way you would date a spouse. You like get to know them over several years and you, you swap lessons learned and you, you call them in hard times and you share what's going on with your business and you work on little projects together. And so through doing all that alongside my business, I ended up with this great pool of potential co-founders, for my, my future ones. And so now in Barcelona, it's like, yeah, I don't really need that stuff, but it's super fun to organize it and to make it available for other folks. And who knows, maybe I will need it again soon, and I'll be glad to have it in place.
0: Nice. nice. It was a very, very random tweet. No, not very random because I knew Jordi. To be at the event and uh, I uh, to be honest I didn't know um, I didn't know you and when you told me you know you 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 told me who you were I was like no way you know so uh, so fantastic to be today speaking you know because uh, we kind of kept in touch afterwards so yeah uh, and I'm happy to to have you here on the podcast and sharing this moment um, and basically you're also writing a book no basically explain me what you you're doing uh, at the moment? What are you focusing on um, besides other projects you may have? You like writing because that's how you introduce yourself. I'm a writer and uh, basically I like writing. And I say, oh, writer, you know, because I like writing too. But when you say that you're already, you know, very well published uh, uh, author, I was like, oh, I'm not that type of writer yet. (laughs) So So, yeah, 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 explain me me, uh, what, what (laughs) what are your writing projects?
1: So after my, I kind of mentioned the, the, the ebb and flow of my career where I started super scalable business, then I went to pure lifestyle business then I went kind of in between with like bootstrapped, but like able to grow and reliable. And that that was the one that did okay. And there were a few more random projects and, and mishaps on the way there. And so after that business, we shut it down after three years because we had four founders and over those three years, the founders goals and lives had just diverged. One person wanted to take some quick cash to buy a house. Someone else wanted to grow the business as big as possible. Someone else wanted to uh, slow down and focus on making more beautiful products. And it was really hard to make strategic decisions when the four founders all wanted kind of different things. But we were three years in. We were completely bootstrapped. We were profitable. There was plenty of cash in the bank. And that afforded us a wonderful option of just shutting the thing down. And so we kind of shook hands and on good terms, we shut down the business, we split up the money that was left in the bank account and everyone kind of went to mostly start new businesses to do the thing they'd wanted to do inside the previous one that we couldn't agree on. And everyone's been really you know, successful and for me what I wanted to do was kind of relax and write and go back to learning. And I would felt like too busy for too many years And I'd ask myself this question, you know, you're doing startups and there's always this idea, I'm going to get my, you know, $10 million exit and then something, something good. And I would sat down and I've been like, well, what would I do if that happens? And my answer was, uh, I, I screw around in a sailboat because I really like the idea of sailing. I wanted to learn how to sail and I would write. And so then I kind of stopped and I was like, well, why don't I just do that now? If that's my life goal, like what's stopping me? And I looked around, I learned how to sail. It turns out that only takes about three weeks. I bought a boat on eBay for 4,000 pounds, which was great. I mean, it was a bit beat up. I had to spend another four months fixing it, but that was fun. Um, I started writing again. And so I, I used to do like blog posts. I did the, the the mom test book out of what I learned from my first company and the, the following years when I was figuring it out. And one of the things I, I did a, alongside this whole time following on from organizing the meetup groups in London is I started teaching workshops and I really enjoyed it. Like back in university, I was a teaching assistant. Uh, I had planned to be an academic, basically a teacher. I, I loved the teaching side of things. And so over like six or seven years, I've been doing more and more workshops. And I was like, oh, well, I'll just write a book about how I I design and run workshops. I trained other people up as facilitators. I'd run lots of events. I was like, this is a skill I've got a pretty good grip on. Um, It's something, and I think I'm able to explain it in a a non-academic and hopefully easy to execute way for other people who want to run workshops. And I just like books as a product category also. Like I think of my business now as being a small publisher because so I publish my own books. I really enjoy it. Um, I had offers from publishers, and I looked at the terms they were offering me, and I just had to laugh. I'm like, you're insane. Like, this is a precious piece of IP. This is a product, and you're just, like, throwing it away. Like, I, I don't get what, what you're doing with this. I could run this much better for myself. And so I've got a little team now, and we, we we basically treat it as a small publishing business. And I'm having a lot of fun with that. And this next book I mentioned, it's called The Workshop Survival Guide, uh, workshopsurvival.com. And if you ever have to make workshops for your job or if you're interested in workshops as a little standalone business, they're a super quick way to generate cash. Uh, then, you know, take a peek. Uh, maybe you'll find it useful.
0: Well, it's, uh, it's yeah, I remember you explained to me about, like, you, you're like a small publishing. So you basically publish yourself. You are like, um, self, uh, you self-publish yourself. That You do that through Amazon? Like, people... Yeah,
1: Exactly. The, the tools are so good. Like we think of books and physical products as being this impossible thing and in manufacturing and warehouses and storage, but with books, and this is true for a lot of physical product categories now, um, with books, you literally just upload a PDF and then when someone buys it on Amazon, Amazon prints it, puts a cover on it, puts it in a box and sends it to them. And that happens in their local warehouse. So if someone orders it in Germany, it gets printed in Germany. If they order it in California it gets printed in California and it's really cool it totally changes the whole business model of books because you no longer need to do print runs you don't need to manage storage of you know X hundred copies of your book in different warehouses around the world it's completely crushed the entire supply chain and the whole publishing industry is built around managing that supply chain printing a 2,000 copy first run and then sending 100 units to the west coast of the U.S. and 150 to the east coast of the U.S. and 100 to Germany. And it's like none of that matters anymore. So like whole people's jobs, like whole departments of the publishing studios are now just irrelevant due to the way like the supply chain can work. And they haven't really caught up. And so it's a place where if you just remove that stuff and you use the modern tools that are available, you can essentially make publishing nine times more profitable, 10 times more profitable, just boom, just by using modern tools. That's true for a lot of physical stuff. Um, I did a board game in the same way. We kickstarted it, we we used modern manufacturing. And it's like, it's such a cool thing. Um, I don't know, it's it's exciting. Uh, these, these old industries, I'm sure there's opportunities in a ton of other industries, publishing is just the one I pay attention to. Um, but they just haven't caught up. They're so stubborn in their ways and they can't accept that like, oh, But if we did that, we'd have to fire five people. Yeah, but if you don't do that, you're going to go out of business because you're irrelevant.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's good for the people out there listening. Um, I I, I believe definitely, I consider that it's a very long process. I mean, you're already... published author yourself and you, you you've you done uh quite well to not say fantastic and you know i think it's once you're out it's, it's it's easier but definitely you know using the tools that are available uh out there even like for a podcast you know and now i am doing using this tool and i do it online and i don't need to have a studio and i don't need you know to have this fancy equipment and spend uh, loads of money in order to you know to to get started so uh So definitely, you know, keeping an eye for what's out there and try to kind of channel your, you know, your, your dreams or whatever you want to do uh, through that. So the modern uh,
1: tools are incredible. There's so much like people still hire technical agencies to make a website, which is just the most insane decision in the universe. You're spending 20 grand for something that you can do for $10 on like Squarespace or any number of other equally good tools. And, And I don't know. Yeah, it's frustrating and weird to learn these tools, and they don't work exactly like you expect. And it takes a bit of googling and research okay. to figure out what all the options are and how they differ. But it's like it's going to save you twenty grand. It's like <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, like it's just an essential competence of being a modern entrepreneur is to be aware of like the the cutting edge in tools and tools and to use them. And it just saves orders of magnitude off of your development time. Like the the big uh, trend that when I was starting my first company and like. 2006, 2007, the big trend was cloud computing, like Amazon web services was the new thing. And so you no longer needed to manage your own servers, Heroku, all of that stuff. Um, And that was like, boom, that like a 10x reduced the price point of starting a business. And now there's things like print on demand, uh, 3d printing, you can take, you can like design a chip and send it off to someone just like a digital design for a, a computer chip or a hardware chip. And they'll just send you back one for like $2. It's insane what you can do. There's so many businesses that used to be closed off to individual entrepreneurs that are now trivially inexpensive to go after. It's a very, very exciting time.
0: Yeah. yeah. So yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's fantastic. Uh, I have a, a a question. Maybe this is like, uh, but what do you have it's your stickers on the wall? What do you have there? It's not related, but don't worry if it's, Oh, yeah. Do you so like keep my... track of, uh, of <laughs> what you do? Is that I don't know. I cannot read it, but I see is that some type of productivity tool you use, like yourself, to, to remind yourself. Yeah. Or
1: on the wall beside me, it's mm-hmm. just um, post its arranged as sort of a kanban board, and it's tracking the <laughs> um, the editing completion of the chapters and sections of my current book of the workshop book, and it's like almost finished. It should be launched in about ten days. Uh, And so it's kind of the final check. Is everything edited? Is everything ready? Does everything have its illustrations? Um, I normally use, you know, Notion or Trello or whatever online tools, but there's also something nice about seeing post-its on the wall. It's a lot more fun to cross something off on paper than it is to, to take it off digitally.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's, it, and it's also the big picture, no? You you get to see it like um, 24 hours because yeah, uh, Trello, <laughs> when you shut down your computer, it's like you're done for the day, but, but uh, with that...
1: Although there's something to be said for that as well, being able to put it away and forget about it.
0: Yeah, but it's uh, so okay, so you do that, it's interesting how you adopt like a, you know, like a Scrum methodology in order to, Kanban in this case, no, in order to... To follow, uh, you know, your your process of publishing, no? So you're definitely treating your 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 book um, as a product, no? Uh, as uh, tech companies do.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think through everything, like from the time I first sat down to write it, it's like, okay, what's the what's the distribution for this and am I going to push hard on the marketing myself? I don't really have a list around this industry. Like the people who listen to me are all about startups, whereas this is about education. So I'm starting from scratch. How am I going to overcome that? Do I want to build the list through aggressive content marketing ahead of time? I decided, no, that's kind of a lot of effort. Um, And so what I did is basically the same as my, my first book where I intentionally designed everything about it for strong word of mouth, where it it's hopefully solving a very clear problem, which is like, ah, I need to teach a workshop in a week and I'm freaking out. It's like, oh, well, this book is the solution. And the same was true for my first book where people would be like, ah, I have to do these customer conversations. and It's it's terrible, it's miserable, I hate it, what do I do? It's like, oh, I know the answer. The answer is this book. So it was kind of designed and scoped in a way to benefit from word of mouth. Um, And then beyond that, it's like influencers, So the first book benefited a lot through, I made like teacher resources and I really targeted universities and it's now taught at like MIT, Harvard, UCL, all the top universities and a bunch of others. This book, I don't expect that to work. So I targeted um, people who are facilitators. It's like, Hey, do you want to like, you can run a workshop to teach people how to run workshops. We'll see if that plays out, but it's like, you kind of choose all this stuff. You think about it from the beginning. How how does this thing get distributed? How do people receive it? And my very favorite thing about books is like, people expect to pay money for books. So it's not an uphill battle to convince them to pay. Whereas with something like a phone app, people expect it to be free. Like to get someone to pay $10 for a book is easy. Like people will do that on an impulse without blinking to get someone to pay $10 for an app which you spent two years and 200 grand developing is so hard. It's like, it's, there's, there's a big impact just from the form factor. So I I like the fact that people are willing to pay for books. Uh, It makes, it makes the rest of the business a lot easier.
0: I mean, definitely because you know, your work, it's, um, it's, you know, being uh, rewarded. I think it's super important. I don't know who I was talking to uh, with, with some, some other guests in the podcast, but it's the same, you know, knowing that you're going to receive some kind of, um, money or reward it's it's definitely it makes you much more engaged and it makes you with everything i think in general you know as we need to to you know to have a living and even if people if people are paying for that it makes you feel like wow these people are i'm really like bringing back, um, value to these people if they are paying it means that it's something valuable so that makes us you know i think uh, people who who write books or people who even you know have products out there but as you're saying there are so much Competition in terms of products and apps. I don't pay for apps either, as you're saying. So it's good that you already thought about that. So you're you already you know all the process. It's been well thought. So you applied all your tips, all the tips you say in in the uh, in, in the book. You you apply it to your to your own life and career.
1: I, I try. There are exceptions. Occasionally, you yeah. want to do a small project just because it's fun, and you're like, "All right, I know how to do this properly, but I'm not going to because this yeah. is just." a fun hobby project that I'm doing for myself, you know? So I'm like, forget it. I'm not gonna be strategic. I'm not gonna be tactical. This is completely self-indulgent. I'm just like doing what I wanna do. And that's fine. And unsurprisingly, those have never worked out for me. But the ones that, yeah, I expect to pay my bills, I treat them a bit more rigorously.
0: Yeah, so basically, um, um, considering like wrapping up in the the conversation we had at the very beginning, uh, when we were defining a little bit what, you know, what the successful startup does, uh, in terms of freedom, I think you are at this stage, or do you do you consider yourself like you know uh, you go to that stage where you can do whatever you like? You you feel you are you are you are you are at stage where you can consider yourself successful? Well, what is your uh, idea of success?
1: Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. So I was really focused on so my first company. It was only successful if we exited for a hundred million dollars, which we obviously missed. And then after that, I was like, okay, I'm successful as long as I can spend my time doing what I want. And I set up a small business, which managed that it took very little time. I was kind of influenced by the four hour work week stuff. And I got down to a one hour work week, four hours per month to basically pay my bills. But there was no extra money and there was no potential for growth. It was just like, I can survive and I have all my time to myself. And I invested that time in learning. That's when I started blogging. That's when I started really reading, studying, learning, talking to other people. Um, Great for like two years. But then I was kind of like, well, it would be nice to be able to go buy a beer every now and then. You know, I was completely broke. All I could do was pay my rent. And so after that, I was like, okay, like let's put some savings away. Let's get the and I set this goal of uh, passive income greater than monthly expenses, you know, through products, through stuff that runs on autopilots, the financial independence uh, milestone. And I wanted to get there by 30. I didn't get there until I was like 32. And then I was like, okay, great. I've like created products. I've like set up businesses. It's completely autopilot. It pays my bills. Um, and that was really cool. And then that's when I got my boat and I, I started screwing around on the boat for a couple of years. Cause it was kind of like, I, I hit the goal. Um, But then I reached like a real difficult plateau where I was kind of like, but also it's not really growing. It was kind of the same as the one earlier. I was like, it's not really growing. I'm not really like, I don't know if like Amazon went out of business tomorrow, all my income dries up, you know, there's like things that could happen. So I was like, okay, I want to grow it a little bit more. And that's when I returned to think of it like, okay, let's grow. This as a publishing business. What does that mean? Will I need to get other authors. Will I do it myself? What kind of support staff do I need? Um, and treating it a bit more seriously. And I'm also now that that stuff's going okay and it's growing again. I'm pretty excited about the progress. It's work I love doing. Although right now it's very stressful and annoying because I hate editing, but whatever. Um, but the I'm like happy with that. And now that that's all sorted, I'm starting to get excited about tech again. I'm like, well, I'm, I'm like looking at these ideas and I'm like, well, it would be fun to do it. Not from a position of like, I need this to work, but from a position of like, okay, everything's stable. And now I'm interested in extending my impact and extending my reach and, and tech is a, obviously the most scalable way to do that. Uh, but we'll see. It's something that I've got kind of a long-term collaborator named Devin and it's something we, we talk about a lot. We always help each other out on all of our projects. So he helps me out on my books. I help him out on whatever. Um, and we kind of just work together on everything and like we talk about it. It's, it's such a tough question. Like what do you do next when you could do anything? Uh, and really, anyone can do anything, like for most people in the Western world. It's like a lot of the restrictions are kind of imagined. So it, it's, it's an interesting question. It's something that I, I think about a lot. And I would, I don't know, I'd love to have an answer, yeah. but I
0: don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So no, I can basically, I think uh, this podcast, you know, as the name of the podcast is Growth Mindset. And I think, um, you know, uh, most of the guests, and, uh, including you, you know, have that um, constantly, you know, Reinventing themselves, um, and I think that's the freedom uh, that makes us so alive and and thinking. You know, it's so challenging at the same time. Thinking, what's the next step? And I think that's and not knowing. I think that's the the hook. You know, that that's what gets us addicted. And uh, you know, being so open to any opportunity uh, and being uh, willing to uh, be willing to kind of learn the new skills and I think that's definitely what what defines a growth mindset person. So uh so thank you so much uh Rob for uh, for being uh, with with me today. I've enjoyed so much this conversation. Um, yeah, likewise.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: And I uh, can't wait to share this with the, with the audience and uh, I'm looking forward to to have your book
1: Uh, Thank you. And uh, if anyone wants either of them, the the one about talking to customers is at momtestbook.com. And the one about teaching is workshopsurvival.com. And if you've got any questions I can help out with, my email is rob at robfitz.com. And uh, I'm always happy to chip in with with support and help and whatever when I can.
0: Yeah, this is how I reach out to you. So uh, because I got your email, so so that's fantastic. So thank you so much, and um, let's uh, let's stay in touch. Have a great day ahead.
1: That sounds great. Bye, everyone.
0: Bye.